Oregon Native American church members, Alfred Smith and Galen Black, ingested the illegal hallucinogen peyote for sacramental purposes at a religious ceremony. At the time, both men worked as counselors for the same private drug rehabilitation organization who fired them after learning that they used the drug. When Smith and Black later applied for unemployment benefits, they were denied because of an Oregon state law that disqualified employees who were terminated for work-related misconduct. The first time the U.S. Supreme Court considered this case, in 1988, they returned it to the Oregon courts to determine whether or not sacramental use of illegal drugs violated Oregon's drug laws. The Oregon Supreme Court held that while the state law prohibited the consumption of illegal drugs for sacramental religious use, it did so in violation of the First Amendment's Free Exercise Clause. And so that was the state of things when the matter came before SCOTUS a second time in 1990, asking them whether a state can deny unemployment benefits to a worker fired for using illegal drugs for religious purposes without violating free religious exercise. In a 6-3 decision for the state of Oregon, the court held that the Free Exercise Clause indeed permits states to prohibit sacramental peyote use and thus to deny unemployment benefits to persons fired for using them. And now, the 1990 opinion of the court in Employment Division, Department of Human Resources of Oregon v. Smith. Justice Scalia delivered the opinion of the court. This case requires us to decide whether the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment permits the state of Oregon to include religiously inspired peyote use within the reach of its general criminal prohibition on use of that drug, and thus permits the state to deny unemployment benefits to persons dismissed from their jobs because of such religiously inspired use. Part 1. Oregon law prohibits the knowing or intentional possession of a controlled substance unless the substance has been prescribed by a medical practitioner. The law defines controlled substance as a drug classified in Schedules 1 through 5 of the Federal Controlled Substances Act, as modified by the State Board of Pharmacy. Persons who violate this provision by possessing a controlled substance listed on Schedule 1 are guilty of a Class B felony, as compiled by the State Board of Pharmacy under its statutory authority, Schedule 1 contains the drug peyote, a hallucinogen derived from the plant Lophophora williamsi. Respondents Alfred Smith and Galen Black 
were fired from their jobs with a private drug rehabilitation organization because they ingested peyote for sacramental purposes at a ceremony of the Native American church, of which both are members. When respondents applied to Petitioner Employment Division for unemployment compensation, they were determined to be ineligible for benefits because they had been discharged for work-related misconduct. The Oregon Court of Appeals reversed that determination, holding that the denial of benefits violated respondents' free exercise rights under the First Amendment. On appeal to the Oregon Supreme Court, Petitioner argued that the denial of benefits was permissible because respondents' consumption of peyote was a crime under Oregon law. The Oregon Supreme Court reasoned, however, that the criminality of respondents' peyote use was irrelevant to resolution of their constitutional claim, since the purpose of the misconduct provision under which respondents had been disqualified was not to enforce the state's criminal laws, but to preserve the financial integrity of the compensation fund, and since that purpose was inadequate to justify the burden that disqualification imposed on respondents' religious practice. Citing our decisions in Sherbert v. Werner and Thomas v. Review Board, the court concluded that respondents were entitled to payment of unemployment benefits. We granted certiorari. Before this court in 1987, petitioner continued to maintain that the illegality of respondents' peyote consumption was relevant to their constitutional claim. We agreed, concluding that if a state has prohibited through its criminal laws certain kinds of religiously motivated conduct without violating the First Amendment, it certainly follows that it may impose the lesser burden of denying unemployment compensation benefits to persons who engage in that conduct. We noted, however, that the Oregon Supreme Court had not decided whether respondents' sacramental use of peyote was in fact proscribed by Oregon's controlled substance law, and that this issue was a matter of dispute between the parties. Being uncertain about the legality of the religious use of peyote in Oregon, we determined that it would not be appropriate for us to decide whether the practice is protected by the federal constitution. Accordingly, we vacated the judgment of the Oregon Supreme Court and remanded for further proceedings. On remand, the Oregon Supreme Court held that respondents' religiously inspired use of peyote fell within the prohibition of the Oregon statute, which makes no exception for the sacramental use of the drug. It then considered whether that prohibition was valid under the Free Exercise Clause and concluded that it was not. The court therefore reaffirmed its previous ruling that the state could not deny unemployment benefits to respondents for having engaged in that practice. We again granted certiorari.
Part 2 Respondents' claim for relief rests on our decisions in Sherbert v. Verner, Thomas v. Review Board of Indiana Employment Security Division, and Hobby v. Unemployment Appeals Commission of Florida, in which we held that a state could not condition the availability of unemployment insurance on an individual's willingness to forego conduct required by his religion. As we observed in Smith 1, however, the conduct at issue in those cases was not prohibited by law. We held that distinction to be critical, for if Oregon does not prohibit the religious use of peyote, and if that prohibition is consistent with the federal constitution, there is no federal right to engage in that conduct in Oregon and the state is free to withhold unemployment compensation from respondents for engaging in work-related misconduct, despite its religious motivation. Now that the Oregon Supreme Court has confirmed that Oregon does prohibit the religious use of peyote, we proceed to consider whether that prohibition is permissible under the Free Exercise Clause. Section A. The Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment, which has been made applicable to the states by the Fourteenth Amendment, provides that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The free exercise of religion means, first and foremost, the right to believe and profess whatever religious doctrine one desires. Thus, the First Amendment obviously excludes all governmental regulation of religious beliefs as such. The government may not compel affirmation of religious belief, punish the expression of religious doctrines it believes to be false, impose special disabilities on the basis of religious views or religious status, or lend its power to one or the other side in controversies over religious authority or dogma. But the exercise of religion often involves not only belief and profession, but the performance of or abstention from physical acts, assembling with others for a worship service, participating in sacramental use of bread and wine, proselytizing, abstaining from certain foods or certain modes of transportation. It will be true, we think, though no case of ours has involved the point, that a state would be prohibiting the free exercise of religion if it sought to ban such acts or abstentions only when they are engaged in for religious reasons or only because of the religious belief that they display. It would doubtless be unconstitutional, for example, to ban the casting of statues that are to be used for worship purposes or to prohibit bowing down before a golden calf. Respondents in the present case, however, 
seek to carry the meaning of prohibiting the free exercise of religion one large step further. They contend that their religious motivation for using peyote places them beyond the reach of a criminal law that is not specifically directed at their religious practice and that is conceitedly constitutional as applied to those who use the drug for other reasons. They assert, in other words, that prohibiting the free exercise of religion includes requiring any individual to observe a generally applicable law that requires or forbids the performance of an act that his religious belief forbids or requires. As a textual matter, we do not think the words must be given that meaning. It is no more necessary to regard the collection of a general tax, for example, as prohibiting the free exercise of religion, by those citizens who believe support of organized government to be sinful, than it is to regard the same tax as abridging the freedom of the press of those publishing companies that must pay the tax as a condition of staying in business. It is a permissible reading of the text, in the one case as in the other, to say that if prohibiting the exercise of religion or burdening the activity of printing is not the object of the tax, but merely the incidental effect of a generally applicable and otherwise valid provision, the First Amendment has not been offended. Our decisions reveal that the latter reading is the correct one. We have never held that an individual's religious beliefs excuse him from compliance with an otherwise valid law prohibiting conduct that the state is free to regulate. On the contrary, the record of more than a century of our free exercise jurisprudence contradicts that proposition. As described succinctly by Justice Frankfurter in Minersville School District Board of Education v. Gobitis, 1940, conscientious scruples have not, in the course of the long struggle for religious toleration, relieved the individual from obedience to a general law not aimed at the promotion or restriction of religious beliefs. The mere possession of religious convictions, which contradict the relevant concerns of a political society, does not relieve the citizen from the discharge of political responsibilities. We first had occasion to assert that principle in Reynolds v. United States, 1879, where we rejected the claim that criminal laws against polygamy could not be constitutionally applied to those whose religion commanded the practice. Laws, we said, are made for the government of actions, and while they cannot interfere with mere religious belief and opinions, they may with practices. Can a man excuse his practices to the contrary because of his religious belief? To permit this, would be to make the professed doctrines of religious belief 
superior to the law of the land, and in effect to permit every citizen to become a law unto himself. Subsequent decisions have consistently held that the right of free exercise does not relieve an individual of the obligation to comply with a valid and neutral law of general applicability on the ground that the law proscribes or prescribes conduct that his religion prescribes or proscribes. In Prince v. Massachusetts, we held that a mother could be prosecuted under the child labor laws for using her children to dispense literature in the streets, her religious motivation notwithstanding. We found no constitutional infirmity in excluding these children from doing there what no other children may do. In Braunfeld v. Brown, 1961, we upheld Sunday closing laws against the claim that they burdened the religious practices of persons whose religions compelled them to refrain from work on other days. In Gillette v. United States, 1971, we sustained the military selective service system against the claim that it violated free exercise by conscripting persons who opposed a particular war on religious grounds. Our most recent decision involving a neutral, generally applicable regulatory law that compelled activity forbidden by individuals' religion was United States v. Lee. There, an Amish employer, on behalf of himself and his employees, sought exemption from collection and payment of social security taxes on the ground that the Amish faith prohibited participation in governmental support programs. We rejected the claim that an exemption was constitutionally required. There would be no way, we observed, to distinguish the Amish believers' objection to social security taxes from the religious objections that others might have to the collection or use of other taxes. If, for example, a religious adherent believes war is a sin, and if a certain percentage of the federal budget can be identified as devoted to war-related activities, such individuals would have a similarly valid claim to be exempt from paying that percentage of the income tax. The tax system could not function if denominations were allowed to challenge the tax system because tax payments were spent in a manner that violates their religious belief. The only decisions in which we have held that the First Amendment bars application of a neutral, generally applicable law to religiously motivated action have involved not the Free Exercise Clause alone, but the Free Exercise Clause in conjunction with other constitutional protections, such as freedom of speech and of the press. Or the right of parents 
acknowledged in Pierce v. Society of Sisters, 1925, to direct the education of their children. Some of our cases prohibiting compelled expression, decided exclusively upon free speech grounds, have also involved freedom of religion. And it is easy to envision a case in which a challenge on freedom of association grounds would likewise be reinforced by free exercise clause concerns. The present case does not present such a hybrid situation, but a free exercise claim unconnected with any communicative activity or parental right. Respondents urge us to hold quite simply that when otherwise prohibitable conduct is accompanied by religious convictions, not only the convictions, but the conduct itself must be free from governmental regulation. We have never held that and decline to do so now. There being no contention that Oregon's drug law represents an attempt to regulate religious beliefs, the communication of religious beliefs, or the raising of one's children in those beliefs, the rule to which we have adhered ever since Reynolds plainly controls. Our cases do not, at their farthest reach, support the proposition that a stance of conscientious opposition relieves an objector from any colliding duty fixed by a democratic government. Section B. Respondents argue that even though exemption from generally applicable criminal laws need not automatically be extended to religiously motivated actors, at least the claim for a religious exemption must be evaluated under the balancing test set forth in Sherbert v. Werner. Applying that test, we have on three occasions invalidated state unemployment compensation rules that condition the availability of benefits on an applicant's willingness to work under conditions forbidden by his religion. We have never invalidated any governmental action on the basis of the Sherbert test except the denial of unemployment compensation. Although we have sometimes purported to apply the Sherbert test in contexts other than that, we have always found the test satisfied. In recent years, we've abstained from applying the Sherbert test outside the unemployment compensation field at all. In Bowen v. Roy, 1986, we declined to apply Sherbert analysis to a federal statutory scheme that required benefit applicants and recipients to provide their social security numbers. The plaintiffs in that case asserted that it would violate their religious beliefs to obtain and provide a social security number for their daughter. We held the statute's application to the plaintiffs valid regardless of whether it was necessary to effectuate a compelling interest. In Ling v. Northwest Indian Cemetery Protective Association, 1988, we declined to apply Sherbert analysis to the government's logging 
and road construction activities on lands used for religious purposes by several Native American tribes, even though it was undisputed that the activities could have devastating effects on traditional Indian religious practices. In Goldman v. Weinberger, 1986, we rejected application of the Sherbert test to military dress regulations that forbade the wearing of yarmulkes. In Olone v. Estate of Shabazz, 1987, we sustained, without mentioning the Sherbert test, a prison's refusal to excuse inmates from work requirements to attend worship services. Even if we were inclined to breathe into Sherbert some life beyond the unemployment compensation field, we would not apply it to require exemptions from a generally applicable criminal law. The Sherbert test, it must be recalled, was developed in a context that lent itself to individualized governmental assessment of the reasons for the relevant conduct. As a plurality of the court noted in Roy, a distinctive feature of unemployment compensation programs is that their eligibility criteria invite consideration of the particular circumstances behind an applicant's unemployment. The statutory conditions in Sherbert and Thomas provided that a person was not eligible for unemployment compensation benefits if, without good cause, he had quit work or refused available work. The good cause standard created a mechanism for individualized exemptions. As the plurality pointed out in Roy, our decisions in the unemployment cases stand for the proposition that where the state has in place a system of individual exemptions, it may not refuse to extend that system to cases of religious hardship without a compelling reason. Whether or not the decisions are that limited they at least have nothing to do with an across-the-board criminal prohibition on a particular form of conduct. Although, as noted earlier, we have sometimes used the Sherbert test to analyze free exercise challenges to such laws. We have never applied the test to invalidate one. We conclude today that the sounder approach and the approach in accord with the vast majority of our precedents is to hold the test inapplicable to such challenges. The government's ability to enforce generally applicable prohibitions of socially harmful conduct, like its ability to carry out other aspects of public policy, cannot depend on measuring the effects of a governmental action on a religious objector's spiritual development. To make an individual's obligation to obey such a law contingent upon the law's coincidence with his religious beliefs, except where the state's interest is compelling, permitting him, by virtue of his beliefs, 
to become a law unto himself contradicts both constitutional tradition and common sense. The compelling government interest requirement seems benign because it is familiar from other fields, but using it as the standard that must be met before the government may accord different treatment on the basis of race, or before the government may regulate the content of speech, is not remotely comparable to using it for the purpose asserted here. What it produces in those other fields, equality of treatment and an unrestricted flow of contending speech, are constitutional norms. What it would produce here, a private right to ignore generally applicable laws, is a constitutional anomaly. Nor is it possible to limit the impact of respondents' proposal by requiring a compelling state interest only when the conduct prohibited is central to the individual's religion. It is no more appropriate for judges to determine the centrality of religious beliefs before applying a compelling interest test in the free exercise field than it would be for them to determine the importance of ideas before applying the compelling interest test in the free speech field. What principle of law or logic can be brought to bear to contradict a believer's assertion that a particular act is central to his personal faith? Judging the centrality of different religious practices is akin to the unacceptable business of evaluating the relative merits of differing religious claims. As we reaffirmed only last term, it is not within the judicial ken to question the centrality of particular beliefs or practices to a faith or the validity of particular litigants' interpretation of those creeds. Repeatedly and in many different contexts, we have warned that courts must not presume to determine the place of a particular belief in a religion or the plausibility of a religious claim. If the compelling interest test is to be applied at all, then it must be applied across the board to all actions thought to be religiously commanded Moreover, if compelling interest really means what it says, and watering it down here would subvert its rigor in the other fields where it is applied, many laws will not meet the test. Any society adopting such a system would be courting anarchy, but that danger increases in direct proportion to the society's diversity of religious beliefs and its determination to coerce or suppress none of them. Precisely because we are a cosmopolitan nation made up of people of almost every conceivable religious preference and precisely because we value and protect that religious divergence we cannot afford the luxury of deeming 
presumptively invalid as applied to the religious objector, every regulation of conduct that does not protect an interest of the highest order. The rule respondents favor would open the prospect of constitutionally required religious exemptions from civic obligations of almost every conceivable kind, ranging from compulsory military service to the payment of taxes to health and safety regulations such as manslaughter and child neglect laws, compulsory vaccination laws, drug laws, and traffic laws to social welfare legislation such as minimum wage laws, child labor laws, animal cruelty laws, environmental protection laws, and laws providing for equality of opportunity for the races. The First Amendment's protection of religious liberty does not require this. Values that are protected against government interference through enshrinement in the Bill of Rights are not thereby banished from the political process. Just as a society that believes in the negative protection accorded to the press by the First Amendment is likely to enact laws that affirmatively foster the dissemination of the printed word, so also a society that believes in the negative protection accorded to religious belief, can be expected to be solicitous of that value in its legislation as well. It is therefore not surprising that a number of states have made an exception to their drug laws for sacramental peyote use. But to say that a non-discriminatory religious practice exemption is permitted, or even that it is desirable, is not to say that it is constitutionally required and that the appropriate occasions for its creation can be discerned by the courts. It may fairly be said that leaving accommodation to the political process will place at a relative disadvantage those religious practices that are not widely engaged in, but that unavoidable consequence of democratic government must be preferred to a system in which each conscience is a law unto itself, or in which judges weigh the social importance of all laws against the centrality of all religious beliefs. Because respondents' ingestion of peyote was prohibited under Oregon law, and because that prohibition is constitutional, Oregon may, consistent with the Free Exercise Clause, deny respondents unemployment compensation when their dismissal results from the use of the drug. The decision of the Oregon Supreme Court is accordingly reversed. It is so ordered. We've reached the end of the opinion. If you'd like to request a particular opinion to be read on the show, or you just want to say hello, 
navigate your way to the show's website at whatscotusrotus.podbean.com and click on the contact tab. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What Scotus Wrote Us.